Thank you for listening to a sermon from the District Church. For more information about us, please visit www.thedistrict.church. Additionally, if any of our sermons have brought encouragement to you, would you please let us know by emailing us at info at Amen. You guys can go ahead and have a seat. Uh, I just want to say good morning to you. Hope you've had a good weekend so far. Um, we're going to be continuing on in our series called The Gospels, um, where we're just walking through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John um, and, and looking at some of the major topics that revolve around the life of Jesus, um, Him ultimately coming down, um, Him ultimately ministering to each one of us. Um, that's going to be kind of the bulk of our time together up until Easter is just all the things um, that Jesus did in His pursuit of us. Um, so whether that was Him turning water into wine um, and kind of celebrating the, the, the feast there at the, uh, the wedding in Cana, or if it was Him seeking out the tax collectors and what does that look like for Jesus to be a friend of sinners. We covered that a couple weeks ago. Um, we're looking at things in which Jesus is doing um, that ultimately in the first culture uh, or, or first century culture would be considered scandalous, would be considered um, contrary to what righteous people should be doing. Um, for example, last week we talked about Jesus and the woman at the well um, and the fact that just him um, talking to a woman was an issue um, at the well. Uh, also talking to a woman who in the culture of the city was considered um, a whore or a prostitute who had five husbands and then was actually um, exchanging sex for rent in the current house that she was living in. Um, and so we saw that idea of Jesus interacting with her. And then she was also a Samaritan who were also considered an unclean people. And so Jesus should have never been in that situation as far as the Pharisees and the self-righteous people were considered um, or what they considered was right and good and moral. Um, and so we're looking at stories in which Jesus is pursuing people that self-righteous people would never touch. Um, and ultimately, Jesus is saying, I'm here to seek and to save the lost. Um, and other areas in Scripture, he talks about it um, as a doctor, as someone who is ultimately healing people. I'm here for the sick, not for the ones who believe they're healthy. Um, and so Jesus is here to go to the marginalized, to go to the ones who are broken and in need of a Savior because they understand the sin that they're dealing with in their lives. And so today we're going to be uh, talking about a passage in which Jesus is now beginning to teach. Um, he's beginning to teach stories as he calls parables. Um, today we're going to be looking at the idea of the, the parable of the sower. And so this is a story in which Jesus is teaching to the people. Um, and, and we actually see that as he's kind of walking along the shore, there's so many people who are hearing about Jesus and what he's doing in the communities um, that he's starting to gather large crowds around him uh, because they want to hear from him. They want to hear what he has to offer them. Um, so, so, so much so that they were actually kind of pushing him back um, and, and not creating a lot of space for him. So he gets in a boat and goes out in the water um, and kind of from a, from a stage in the water is then preaching and proclaiming um, this parable, this story of the sower uh, to the people um, out on, on the beach. And so um, just to kind of share with you real quick what a parable is, because um, you, might, you might have heard the idea of parables, but don't necessarily know exactly what they are, or what, the, what they mean, and, and the kind of the point of parables. Um, parables in the New Testament are similar to Proverbs in the Old Testament, in which it's a story that is drawing um, a point that is a comparison of some sort. So where Jesus is ultimately trying to get across a truth about the Word of God, He's using um, relevant stories uh, or relevant ways of life in order to teach a point. Uh, he's, he's taking two concepts and comparing them together in order to drive a point home. Um, and that's what he's doing in this story here. Another interesting thing about this idea of a parable is that um, typically in Scripture, we see non-believers missing the point or missing the deeper meaning because of their lack of of proper belief in Christ. Um, and so, like, for example, this story of the parable, he teaches the parable to the masses, but then later, as we'll see, he only then explains the parable to the disciples. And so there can be a lot of confusion for the people as far as non-believers when it comes to him sharing a story. And even within the disciples, 
he shares this story. They hear him preach this story. Um, but then afterwards, they're like, what are you talking about? Like, what are you actually getting at with this parable of the sower? And then Jesus goes on to explain it to them. So there's also a piece of belief that has to be involved in us being able to understand the word of God. And I'm going to get into what that ultimately means for us. Um, and, and I'll be honest with you, kind of out of the gate, um, in the preparation stage of this message, because I've never preached on this topic before as far as the parable of the sower, um, in the prep stages throughout the week, this one was kind of a, a muddy one for me. It was kind of difficult to prep for it because from what I've heard the majority of my life and people preaching on this passage was the parable of the sower is a mission standpoint. It's a, uh, you are to take seeds and you are to cast them. You are to, to share the word of God with those that are around you. And that's kind of what I've always heard in regards to this story. Um, and the reality is the more that I dug into it, and I was quick to actually jump on and say, that's, that's where we're gonna go with this. Um, but the more that I delve into it, um, actually finding that the, the, the point of this sermon is more about the hearers of the word rather than someone actually going and sharing the word. And that's what we're going to focus on today is, is these four types of soils, these four types of hearers. And that's kind of the comparison that he's drawing here. He's, he, Jesus is talking about soil, but theologically he's actually talking about hearers. Seed is the word of God and, and it ultimately being cast out. Um, but what happens with the hearers is the main point of this story. Um, and that's what we're going to focus on for us today. And so it was kind of going to be easy for us to jump out and say, hey, this is going to be a call to mission. This is going to be a, hey, let, let's take the word of God and let's go out and let's share it. Um, but what actually got me more excited about this message was focusing on the hearers and then focusing on the things um, that, that we deal with throughout life um, that really correlate with each one of these hearers. Um, and so don't view this as I've already received the word of God and I'm good to go. So I just need to be a sower. I just need to be someone who spreads the word of God because there are some pretty strong warnings in here um, in each one of these stories of, of the hearers that in, in a lot of ways might shock you, um, might cause some, some, maybe even some confusion in your own heart, your own soul, uh, might even cause some, some fear in your own heart and your own soul based on how have I received the word and how have I ultimately responded to the word and is it proving evidence that I'm a true believer? Because the reality is when we look at all four of these, these pictures um, of hearers, all four of them to some degree received the word. But only one ultimately sustained the word throughout his entire life. And so we're going to look at that idea. So it's almost four people saying we're believers, but only one actually showing truth that they are a believer based on evidence um, coming from it. And so think through that as, as we jump into this. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 13. So if you got your Bibles, um, turn with me to, to Matthew chapter 13. And uh, we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 23. 1 through 23. Matthew 13, picking it up in verse 1. That same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat beside the sea. And great crowds gathered about him, so that he got into a boat and sat down. And the whole crowd stood on the beach. And he told them many things in parables, saying, A sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seeds fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on rocky ground, where they did not have much soil. And immediately they sprang up, since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched. And since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. Other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. Verse 10, Then the disciples came and said to him, Why do you speak to them in parables? And he answered he answered them, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. For to the one who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. 
This is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says, You will indeed hear, but never understand, and you will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their eyes they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed." lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn, I would heal them. But blessed are, our, blessed are your eyes, for they see and your ears, for they hear. For truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see and did not see it and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. That's a terrifying verse just in and of itself. Verse 18, hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy, yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. As for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. As for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields, in one case a hundredfold, in another sixty, and in another thirty. Let's pray. God, we, we ask that through the reading of your word and the teaching of your word, um, God, that you would allow us to be able to understand your word, that you would allow us to be able to know you more and more, which will produce within us a love for you that will only grow deeper. And then that will produce for us the fruit that will bear a hundredfold, 60, 30. God, that we would in understanding your word and your truths, that we would see and treasure you above anything and everything that we come in contact with. God, that we would see your creation for what it is to be enjoyed, but not to just be enjoyed, but that it would roll past that and ultimately be something that we glorify you because of. That we don't see creation as just something that satisfies but ultimately brings us into the satisfaction of you and you alone. God, we ask that reading your word and studying it, that your Holy Spirit would illuminate our hearts and our minds, that it would give us ears to hear and eyes to see the truth of who your son Jesus is. God, because it's only in his grace that he extends that we can understand this. And it's only in his grace that then drives our efforts to be able to pursue you, to be disciplined in you, and to ultimately love you with all our heart, with all our soul, and with all our mind. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. A couple of, of, of points to consider from this parable of the sower. The, the first point to mention here is that Jesus came to sow and not to harvest yet. We ultimately know that Jesus does harvest. He does gather a people. But the first idea here is that Jesus coming to the earth was to sow a seed, was to sow the word of God as he goes out. One of the reasons why the Pharisees missed Jesus was because they were expecting God's kingdom to show up in the first century. They were expecting God's kingdom to come and to reap a harvest. And so basically what they were looking at was they were looking at one another and saying because of the Mosaic law, because of of what Moses wrote in the Ten Commandments, and then as he added to that, ultimately bringing in about 613 laws, the Pharisees are saying we who abide in those things, we who who consider ourselves righteous, Jesus is ultimately going to come and, and gather us in. He's going to ultimately reap us as a harvest and then he's going to destroy the wicked. He's going to do away with those who are the sinners, those who are the Samaritans, those who are the, 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 the women at the well, those who are the ones who, uh, the tax collectors and sinners, Jesus is going to come and destroy them and gather us. And what Jesus is ultimately doing here is what he's showing is, I, I didn't come to reap a harvest of self-righteous people, but rather reap a harvest of righteous people that I have made righteous. 
that I have given the word of God to and within them, they've received the word of God and in receiving it have produced fruit, have produced a harvest within them in which the seed is going out. The word of God is going out and ultimately spreading itself through the earth. As we see in Habakkuk 2.14, as Jesus says, or as God says in that, um, that the glory of God is going to cover the earth like the waters cover the sea. This is the word of God going out and people receiving the word of God, it coming into their lives and transforming them to become more and more like Jesus. This was his message. This was his mission was to come and sow that to come and instill that into the hearts and minds of people in order to give them a new heart, a new spirit in order to receive this and walk in this. And that's why the Pharisees missed it because they thought they were already good. They thought they were already good to go. Jesus, as soon as you come, Messiah, as soon as you come, we're ready because we've made ourselves righteous and therefore they miss it. From this text, we gather that Jesus is scattering seeds along different soils, and we'll get into the soils. But what, we, but what is the seed that Jesus is scattering? As we see in verse 19, the seed is the word of God. And the four different types of soils represent what happens with those who do and don't understand the word of God. So this entire passage is about the weight, the value, and the magnitude of the word of God in our lives. And also how we then go about receiving the word of God in our lives. It's not just about mission and casting seed, but it's about how we actually receive it. How we actually are able to be changed and transformed by the word of God. How we're able to stand firm and persevere in the word of God before we ever spread it. And that's what I want to focus our attention on today. The second point to mention here is that the ability to receive the word of God and to respond to it is ultimately the gift of God. It's ultimately the gift of God. It, it, it's only something in which we can receive if God grants it to us to be able to receive. Listen to these passages about God as the gifter of grace to us. John 14, 6 says, Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. You want to get to heaven? You want to get to the Father? You have to go through Jesus. You have to go through Jesus. How then do I go through Jesus? Ephesians 2, 8 through 9 says this, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Salvation is ultimately a gift from God that we receive from him. It says we are saved by grace through faith. And all of that, including the faith, is a gift of God given to us so that no one can boast, so that no one can stand up before God with pride and say, see God, I deserve this because of the things that I've done, because of the goodness that I've brought to the table, I am able to deserve you giving me salvation. No one can come to God and say, I am good, therefore give me salvation. The only way that we can come to God is by God giving us faith to receive the word of God in order to understand it and believe in it so that no one may boast. The only person who can boast in salvation is Jesus himself because he's made a way. I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Therefore, Jesus earned everything that we need in order to receive salvation. He, he lived the perfect life that we could not live, which is contrary to the belief of the Pharisees. They believe that they've reached perfection because they've created rules about the rules. They keep adding rules about the rules. And because of that, they've, they've got to be, be, uh, went beyond this idea of holiness. They've gone beyond this idea of, of what it means to be righteous. We are good in and of ourselves, and therefore God come and reap us as a harvest. And the reality is, is that no one can say that. No one can boast in our good deeds, but only can boast in the good deeds of Jesus. Like we are saved by works. Like you re realize that, right? Like when I say we're saved by works, we are saved by works, but it's not our works. It's Jesus' works. It's everything that Jesus did for us that saves us so that we boast in him, not us. Like salvation is not meant to be about us receiving glory. 
about us receiving or, or, or saying or standing and saying, I'm awesome. Like God saved me because he loved me is not us saying, God saved me because I'm awesome or God loved me because I'm awesome. No, God saved me and loved me because despite me, Jesus is the one whom he ultimately loves as he looks down on Jesus at his baptism and says, this is my son, this is my beloved son in whom I love, in whom there's perfection. And so when Jesus comes and ultimately becomes sin so that we would become his righteousness, God then is able to look on us and say, I love you because I see you as I see my son Jesus. Before Christ, there's nothing in us in which God would look upon and say, you are good. Even as we are his creation, we're fractured. We are fractured by sin. Our identity is sin. And when it comes to identity, that's what God views as righteous and unrighteous. And when we are sin, sinners, apart from Christ, there's nothing in us that we would boast that God would look at and say, I love you. But because of Jesus coming and vindicating our sins, past, present, and future, by him transforming us, by him transferring our account of sin and making it an account of righteousness, God is able to look at us and say, this is my son and my daughter in whom I love, in whom I cherish, in whom I run to, in whom I adopt and bring into my family. That cannot happen without Jesus Christ without him atoning for us. Salvation is a gift from God that we received. Saved by grace through faith is all a gift of his. Salvation is an act of God in which we are 100% totally and utterly dependent upon him. The truth is that we actually, we already are. Like every single person, both the unbeliever and the believer are 100% totally dependent upon God. Like you get that, right? Like, like every single person who lives is already 100% dependent upon God. There's no difference between believer and unbeliever. You might say, no, Dwayne, like I've got friends who don't depend on the Lord. And before you disagree with me, listen to this verse. Colossians 1, 15 through 17 says this. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things and in him all things hold together. Did you catch that? Like did in Jesus all things hold together. So just think about that for a moment. All of creation was imagined by Jesus. It was created by Jesus and it is sustained by Jesus. Just the fact that he created certain flavors and attached them to food is a creation of God for our enjoyment, a creation by Jesus for us to enjoy, to roll past in order for him to be glorified. He didn't have to do that, but he did that. Everything was imagined and thought of by Jesus in order for us to enjoy for him to ultimately receive glory. Not only does he create things for our enjoyment, but he sustains things for our enjoyment. And just think about that for a moment. Like grass remains grass because Jesus is sustaining and holding it together. Like me up here, standing here, being able to speak to you is being sustained by Jesus right now. If he were to just let go, I don't know, I might just drop out and become water or something. Like everything, like this mic is remaining metal and other things that are in it because Jesus is sustaining this mic. Think about it even further to the point of him laying his life down. The, the glands in the mouth of the men that produced saliva in order to spit upon Jesus was being sustained by Jesus in that moment. The muscles of the men who bound Jesus, who ripped his beard out, who put a crown of thorns on his head, who persecuted him, who beat him, and who nailed him to a cross, those muscles that were used were being sustained by Jesus in that moment. At 
any time he could have destroyed them and annihilated them and just ripped their muscles apart, but he chose to lay his life down. He chose to sustain their muscles in order to carry out him sacrificing himself for us. Jesus sustains all things. Every single atom and element in all of creation is being held together because of Jesus. We are all 100% totally dependent upon him. The difference between the non-believer and the believer is that the believer knows it. That's the difference. The difference between everyone who's, who's borrowing creation in order for their own gain versus us who are using creation for the gain of the gospel, for the advancement of the gospel. The difference is, is one knows Christ, one does not. One is glorifying him because of what he's done and one is glorifying themselves, using his stuff to glorify themselves. But that's even a common grace. That's even a common grace from God to give gifts to both non-believer and believer for us to use them, for us to enjoy them. final passage I want to read about God's sovereignty and rule over salvation before I get into our responsibility, the four soils, is Ezekiel 36, 22 through 29. It says, Therefore say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when, though you, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I, get, that I gave to your fathers and you shall be my people and I will be your God and I will deliver you from all your uncleanness. Who sounds like the active agent in that relationship? Like, does it sound like man is doing a lot in order for God to save them? No. God is the one doing everything. I will take you from the nations and will gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and make you clean. I will put a new heart within you, a new spirit I will put within you in order for you to keep my statutes. I will cause you to walk in my statutes. God is the one who is causing salvation to happen. And the reason why we preach and proclaim that so strongly is because we want God to receive the glory for what salvation is doing, not us. Like when someone gets saved, that's part of the reason why we, we, we share testimonies last week is because we want testimonies to be about God receiving glory, not us receiving glory. We want God to be seen as good, not us. As John, the as John the Baptist, who remember Jesus telling him that, or, or referencing him as being the greatest who has ever lived, born among women. So in all of creation, in all of history, the billions upon billions of people who have lived, Jesus himself says there's no one greater except John the Baptist. So who would have reason to boast apart from John the Baptist? But yet what does John the Baptist say about himself? I must decrease. He must increase. I'm not even worthy to untie his sandals. This is John the Baptist, greatest person who have ever lived, according to Jesus, and Jesus doesn't lie. So who are we to boast about anything that we do in order to earn God's favor? There's, no, there's nothing. But what we do boast in is the fact that God is sovereign and that God's providence is working out all 
things for us to be able to receive his word, to receive his grace, to receive his goodness, to receive his love. God is in control of that. Like at the end of the day, what do you find rest in? God being in control or you being in control? That shouldn't be a hard question, right? Like at the end of the day, I rest in knowing that I serve, that I, that I surrender to a sovereign God who is in control of all things. If at any point he were to come to me and say, Dwayne, I want you to kind of run this one for a little while. That would terrify me. Like that would be a horror movie in which I know that I'm going to run things down a path that are going to lead to my destruction. There's a proverb that even talks about that. The fact that there's a way that seems right to us and its end is destruction. Even when we plan things out, even when we want to go, like like leading a church can be terrifying at times when we feel like God is silent because there's any time at any moment we could lead this thing astray and we could ultimately run it into the ground because we're fallen, because we're sinful, because we're humans. Just hang out with us for one afternoon and you'll see that. We rest in the fact that we serve an all-sovereign, all-powerful God who is in control. So that's the main thing of him coming to sow is the fact that he's in control of salvation. Now, there's hearers on our end. There's hearers, there's receivers of this. And I want to talk with you about what those look like really quickly through the four soils. As he causes us to walk in God's statues, here's what that looks like. And I just want to mention too that it's good news that he causes us to do this. Here are the four hears. The first one is the path. A person hears the word of God and does not understand it. The evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. He hears it. This is a person who hears it, might even contemplate it for a second, but ultimately doesn't see the need for it because he doesn't see his sin, nor does he see the Savior. Because the evil one has come and distracted him just enough to not do any type of self-examination. The word has been preached and the word has fallen on deaf ears. He who hears, let him hear. Some are not able to. This is the word of God being preached and proclaimed and someone literally hitting their mind, hitting their heart and falling. Because the evil one comes in and and strips it out. The evil one comes in and distracts them just enough to to not look at themselves and say, "Does does this really have anything to do with me? Am I really a sinner? Or am I kind of living through life on this balance, this scale of as long as I do more good than bad, then I'm not a sinner. As long as I do more good than in the end, Jesus is ultimately going to grant me eternal life. And so that's kind of what I'm measuring life based on. That's how I'm walking through life. The the difference in in all world religions versus Christianity is all world religions have this type of moral code in which as long as you do more good than bad, then you're good to go. Christianity is the only one that says both good and bad are bad and you need Jesus in order to ultimately find salvation. You need Jesus Christ to grant to you righteousness because both your good deeds and your bad deeds lead you to a path of destruction because you're sinful. Everything you do is stained by sin because you were born a sinner. This is the person who is on the path is they're not able to get to the place of understanding that they are a sinner in need of a savior. And so the word of God hits them and falls. They do not have ears to hear. My prayer for that is that for each one of us that we would pray for both ourselves as well as for any person who comes into the district church and hears the word of God preached, that we would pray for our co-workers, that we would pray for our neighbors, that when we share with them the word of God, when we share with them the testimony that's pointing to Jesus and how good he is, that we would pray for them to have ears to hear and that when the word of God is shared with them, that they would not be like the person on the path in which the evil one comes in and snatches out the word before they're able to understand it. 
that we would pray for God to awaken and open up their hearts and their minds to be able to receive it. That's the person along the path. The second one is the rocky ground. A person hears the word of God and immediately receives it with joy, yet there's been no root, no understanding, no contemplation of sin and Savior. They jump all into church because it provides for them a community of friends or it provides for them a, a community of, of acceptance or purpose or literally it's kind of the idea of the, the church being a country club. Like it's providing for me things, voids in my life that I have, but I've never actually really contemplated sin and Savior. I just contemplated the fact that I'm missing out on some things in life and I need some friends. I need a community. This is the rocky ground. They jump all in, not really considering this thing called faith. They'll last a little while, but once tribulation and persecution arise on account of the word of God, they'll run because it's never taken root in them. It's, it's, it's never ultimately embedded itself within them and given them the strength to be able to sustain when persecution and trials arise. Some say, well, of course they'll run. Who wants to suffer and be afflicted? If God is so good and if God is all powerful, then why do bad things happen to people? Why have persecutions and trials if that's ultimately going to cause people to run away from the word of God rather than to the word of God? Why doesn't God just do away with those things? Why doesn't God just wipe out trials and persecutions and suffering if that is causing a hindrance for people to receive the word of God? Why doesn't he do that? And honestly, that's an entire sermon in and of itself. But here is what I want to say in regards to affliction, to tribulation, call it what you want. Here's what I know from God's word. Not only, not only is all your affliction momentary and not only is all your affliction light in comparison to eternity and the glory there, but all of it is totally meaningful. It's completely meaningful. Every millisecond of your pain, from the fallen nature or fallen man, every millisecond of your misery in the path of obedience is producing a peculiar glory you will receive because of that. Every affliction you go through, every pain you endure is producing glory for you to receive in heaven. Not necessarily here, but ultimately in heaven. I don't care if it was cancer or criticism. I don't care if it was slander or sickness. It wasn't meaningless. It's doing something in your life. And of course, you can't see what it is doing right now. Don't look to what is seen currently. When your parent dies, when your kid dies, when you get cancer at 25, when you can't find a job and don't know how you're going to pay the bills, when your wife is three months pregnant and goes through the horror of a miscarriage, that's producing something in your life. That's doing something that only God can see and we can't see it here. Don't say it's meaningless. It's not. It's working for you an eternal weight of glory. Therefore, in the midst of affliction, do not lose heart. But take these truths, these truths, and day by day, focus on them. Preach the word of God to yourself daily. Preach the gospel. Sh share the gospel with yourself daily. This is who God is. This is what Jesus has accomplished. This is what Jesus is doing. Don't focus on the circumstances. Don't focus on the affliction. Focus on the word. Preach itself to yourself every single morning until your heart sings with confidence that Jesus is good and that you're new and that you're cared for. The hearer on rocky ground did not trust the word of God to sustain him in the midst of affliction. Will you? Will 
you trust the promises of God when all seems lost, when all around you life seems as though it is crumbling? Will you hold fast to the word of God with patience? That is a sign that you've received the word of God and it's not just falling on rocky ground, but it's embedded itself within you is when circumstances come that are messy. Will you trust the word of God or will you run? Will you run? As for what was sown among the thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and it proves unfruitful. This is similar to the rich young ruler who hears the message of Jesus but does not accept it because his wealth pulls him away. You want to know what terrifies me about this hearer of the word of God, this certain soul that we're talking about? There are people who have made a profession, a career out of intertwining the word of God and the cares and riches of this world. They've intertwined them. They've mingled them and have been selling them to people and calling it the gospel. We, we, we call it prosperity gospel, health, wealth, and prosperity gospel. You'll, you'll, you'll see this throughout. You'll see this in books. You want your best life now? Follow Jesus. You want to live life to the fullest? Follow Jesus. You want to reach your maximum potential? Follow Jesus. Who's that centering on? That's centering on man and my needs and, and more so my wants rather than focusing on Jesus and what he ultimately wants for me. What he wants me to walk through. Like the reality is, is Jesus may never want for you a bank account that checks out at the end of every single month. He may want you to be dependent upon him every single month. You might not be able to have kids and that's something that Jesus wants for you because that's an affliction that's producing for you a glory that you can't see here. Like following Jesus does not mean that everything works out for you. Following Jesus may mean that your life ends up in a way that you did not picture for yourself. It might not end up looking like the American dream. But if we're wanting the American dream over wanting Jesus, then we're ultimately going to be the hearer among the thorns in which when the American dream exposes itself and gives us the opportunity to live in it, we will run to it rather than running to Jesus. Because the cares and riches of this world have choked it out. Rather, when do we ask ourselves the question, what about, do you want to know God? Follow Jesus. Do you want to know the unsearchable riches of God's grace? Then follow Jesus. Do you want to know the freedom of being able to confess sin and to receive forgiveness and care? Follow Jesus. The prosperity gospel is just crap. That's all it is. I love what John Piper has to say about the prosperity gospel. And here's what he says. He says, I don't know how you feel about the prosperity gospel, the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel, but I'll tell you what I feel about it. Hatred. Hatred. It's not the gospel. It's being preached throughout our churches and our nation, selling a bill of goods to the poorest of the poor. Believe this message and your wife won't have miscarriages. You won't get cancer. You have more than enough money to fulfill all your dreams. That's coming out of our churches. People who ought to be giving of their lives, giving of their time, giving of their resources. And instead, we're selling a bunch of crap and just calling it the gospel. We're selling a bunch of, here's a good life. And of course, if you sell the idea of having a good life, well, of course, a bunch of people are going to run to Jesus. Life is going to be great but it does not sustain them in the moment. It does not sustain them for eternity. I mean, when was the last time anyone has ever said, Jesus is all satisfying because you have more than enough stuff? Did Jesus give you that? Yeah. Well, then I'll take some Jesus. That's never going to happen. It's never going to happen. 
That's idolatry. That's not the gospel. That's elevating gifts above giver. And I'll tell you what makes Jesus look beautiful is when you've experienced the most horrifying atrocity that you can think of. And in that moment, through the deepest pain possible, you respond not with running from the word of God, but rather coming to Jesus. And you respond by saying, God is enough. God is enough. He is good. He will take care of us. He will satisfy us. He will get us through this. He is enough. Whom I who whom have I in heaven but you and on earth there's nothing that I desire but you. My flesh and my heart, my family may fail, but you are the strength of my heart and my portion forever. That makes God look glorious. Not as giver of money or safety or health but as giver of himself, regardless of our circumstances. I pray that that the church would vanquish the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel, that it would completely do away with it, and that we as a church would be marked by suffering for Christ for the sake of spreading the word of Jesus. I'd rather our lives look as though they are falling apart because we are so ingrained in trusting in the word of God to spread rather than all of our lives looking like we're getting everything that we desire and yet the word of God is not spreading at all. That's my greatest fear is that we take American dream and we take church and we intertwine those things and we call it gospel-centered. As for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. The word of God has embedded itself in heart and soul of a person. What did Ezekiel say? A new heart I give you, a new spirit I give to you. We only understand because of the grace given to understand, the faith given to comprehend the truths of God. And how does it finish? He says, it indeed bears fruit. And it yields in cases 100 or 100 fold and another 60 and another 30. The person who hears the word of God and the person who understands it will bear fruit. What does that mean? What does that mean to bear fruit? It means you're going to be busy. It means you are going to be busy. You're going to be active. You're going to be running the race set before you. You're going to be in the fight of the word of God being spread both in your own identity, as well as those who are around you. 1 Corinthians 9 says this, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we are an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and I keep it under control lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. This is Paul preaching to the Corinthians. Christ is in you. You are secure. So therefore, discipline yourself, train yourself, run the race of sanctification, persevere in holiness. Christ has saved you. He's justified you. He's forgiven you. Now walk, run in pursuit of becoming who Christ has already made you. The biggest difference between justification and sanctification is in justification, you are standing still. You are doing nothing. The only thing that you have to bring to the table of your justification, God saving you, God making you right, the only thing you have to bring to the table is the sin that Jesus paid for on the cross. We then move into a position of now walking or running with Jesus through our sanctification, which means there's responsibility on our part. And so this message is going to sound contradictory because the entire time in the first part of it, I've been saying, don't do anything. There's nothing that you can do. There's nothing that you can earn in your righteousness, in your salvation. And now all of a sudden in sanctification, there is responsibility. There is an action on our part in which because we understand that we've been justified, we now understand that we are to get to work. 
that there's an active responsibility on our part to discipline our bodies in order to grow in the word of God, in order to grow in the gospel and understand the gospel and its implications for our lives. You will not grow in the gospel by being a couch potato in your faith. You get that? Even though God is sovereign, does not mean that me sitting back and not reading the word, not praying, not sharing the word, means that it's just going to happen for me. If I don't actively engage and pursue Christ as he has pursued me, I will not grow in the word of God. I will not mature in the word of God. This is why he set up the process of making disciples. This is why he spent three years with 12 men and then told them, go and do for others what I've done for you because that's the only way that it's going to work. Jesus does not act everything on our behalf without there being some sort of response on ours. And here's the reason. We call this grace-driven effort because it does produce effort on our part in order for sanctification to happen, but it's grace-driven. The reason why we know it's grace-driven is because there's going to be two types of people. Really, this idea of the soils is two types of people. There's either those who are saved and pursue Jesus and produce a fruit because of it, or there are those who are not saved and will run from Jesus and produce no fruit. There's believer and non-believer. This is what we're talking about here. And here's one of the reasons why I think we, we have an issue with this and understanding this in our, in our society is we, we kind of live in a trophy generation and I'm going to be making fun of millennials even though I technically fall into the category. We kind of live in a trophy generation where all the kids are like, look, I got a trophy. <laughs> and I'm like, you lost every single game. Why do you get a trophy? Like you're down at the end picking dandelions in the field while they're scoring goals on the other side. Like you do not deserve a trophy. And before you talk to me about being a bad parent, I just want to reiterate it even that much more. Ezra will not be bringing trophies home if he lost. <laughs> I want him to feel defeat. <laughs> I want him to feel the weight of that. I want him to go through an entire season of working and working and working and it possibly not work out. Why? Because it's producing something within him. It's producing with him a maturity of everything is not just handed to you. There's got to be action on our part. There's got to be a response. There's got to be a responsibility. I understand that. I know that looking back at my senior year, and I'm going to reminisce here for a minute, so bear with me, but senior year, I was a part of a really good football team. We were undefeated. We were in the semifinals, 13-0, going down to Memphis, Tennessee to play in inner city school. We were a completely white team with one black kid. They were a completely black team with one white kid who was their quarterback. Very stereotypical, but anyways... We played each other. They beat us by six points. We were, we were picked to, to go on to state and win state. We were number two in the entire season as far as in the state of Tennessee as a football team. And I'll tell you this, it, was, it did more for me losing that game than if I would have gone on to the next week and have won state. It produced more character in me of how I was going to respond in that moment than if I would have gone on to have won it all. We've got to feel that. We've got, like, we can't, like, here's the thing. I don't want, applying this to faith, I don't want Ezra to think, I don't really have to love Jesus. I don't really have to care. I don't really have to try. I don't really have to think anything of him or study about him or pray to him. I don't really have to do any of those things because he saved me, so I'm good to go. Because he, because he saved me, and because he's sovereign and because he's in control of all things, I'm good to go. I get a participation trophy at the end of it. I don't have to earn anything. I don't have to do anything on this back end in order to ultimately receive eternal life. I'm good. I get a participation trophy. I'm a part of the team. I'm a part of the church. 
all that reveals is the fact that God never saved you. That's the difference. I love what D.A. Carson has to say about this. D.A. Carson says, people do not drift toward holiness. Apart from grace-driven effort, people do not gravitate toward godliness, toward prayer, obedience to scripture, faith, and delight in the Lord. We drift toward compromise and call it tolerance. We drift toward disobedience and call it freedom. We drift toward superstition and call it faith. We cherish the indiscipline of lost self-control and we call it relaxation. We slouch toward prayerlessness and delude ourselves into thinking that we have escaped legalism. We slide toward godlessness and convince ourselves that we've been liberated. We come up with all kinds of excuses of why we don't do the disciplines of Scripture because we're free in Christ. John Piper says it this way, part of the whole process of walking worthy of God's call is the active engagement of our will in resolving to do righteousness. This is the Romans 3 passage where Paul's literally walking through the idea that there's nothing that you can do to earn righteousness. There's nothing that you can do to live by the law. The law will not satisfy you. So he then says, Jesus came not to abolish the law, but rather to do what? Uphold the law. So what Jesus ultimately come to do was, you cannot live by the law and earn righteousness. So I'm going to die for you. I'm going to give you righteousness. And because I give you righteousness, it now gives you the ability to live by the law. Like he's not doing away with the law. He's not doing away with the rules. Rather, what he's doing is he's giving us the ability. He's giving us the grace-driven effort in order for us to now pray to God, to read and study and understand who God is, to be able to look at the stories that Jesus preaches and proclaims and be able to say, Jesus is good because of what he's done. He gives us that ability to be able to do that. He gives us the boldness and the empowerment to be able to go and share the gospel with those who are around us. What did the disciples do before the crucifixion? They ran like cowards. Jesus then gets crucified and sends the Holy Spirit. And what happens to them? They get emboldened and now they're each being crucified because of the word of God. They're not running from it, but rather running to it. And the only reason why is because Jesus gave them the grace to be able to do that. But that grace looks like us providing effort. It looks like us actively engaging. It looks like us trusting what scripture says, meditate on the word day and night. Get in it. What does it say? Psalm 119, 9 through 6. How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. You got to be in the word in order to guard your heart, to keep your way pure. With my whole heart, I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. You want to know how to stop sinning daily? Get in the word of God and get the word of God in you. How do I get the word of God in me? I've got to read it. I've got, to, I've got to piece it apart. I've got to study. I've got to dissect this thing. I've got to memorize this scripture. I've got to saturate my mind and my heart and my life in the word of God. And the more that I do that, I will be sanctified because of the sovereignty of God. And in that, I will sin less and I will worship him more. We've got to get into the word. What does it continue on saying? Blessed are you, O Lord. Teach me your statutes. With my lips, I declare all the rules of your mouth. In the way of your testimonies, I delight as much as in all riches. What is he saying? By meditating on your testimonies, by meditating on your word, I'm delighting in that more so than I would in the riches that I would get from this world. I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. 
So reading and studying the word of God is one. Praying is another. Matthew 26, 41 says this, watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is indeed willing, but the flesh is weak. Because my flesh is weak and because I understand my flesh is weak, I've got to get into prayer so that I'm not led into temptation. What's Lent? That's the whole purpose of why we're doing Lent is, is not just for 40 days a year for you to, to, to sacrifice lesser things in order to understand the greater things of the gospel. It's not meant for just 40 days. This is meant for you to see with your own experience what happens when you sacrifice things that are pulling you away from the word of God and when you then um, when you then immerse yourself into the things that are great in the word of God, what happens in that? It produces within you a confidence in the word of God, a confidence in Jesus alone that will sustain you. Lent's not just to be 40 days. It, it, it's meant for us to be able to see the word of God anew for us to focus on it, to meditate on it, to get it into our minds, to get it into our hearts and by the sovereignty of God for him to transform us from one degree of glory to the next, for him to, to make us a little more like Jesus today than yesterday. So that as I look at myself Five years from now, and I look back, I'm able to say, Dwayne then was messed up. Dwayne today is a little better, but still messed up. I'm still hoping Dwayne five years from now is going to be better than Dwayne today. But the only way that that is going to progress is by me getting in the word of God. Not because I feel as though I'm obligated to get into it, but because I understand what Jesus did for me, I now want to get into the word of God. I desire it. My affections are stirred up for it. When we just think about the cross and what Jesus did for us to be brought in, how is it possible for us to ever turn to anything that does not elevate him how is it possible for us to look at creation and say i want to worship it rather than him when we see what he did on the cross guys my fear and I'm, I'm not here to scare you into questioning your salvation. There's assurance for those who believe. There's assurance for those who have faith. The difference that I want to focus, that I want you to walk away from, is where are my affections? When, when persecution, when affliction, when circumstances of life come in, where do I run? Am I like the, the hearer on rocky ground? Do, do I run from Jesus? When opportunities for wealth come in, when opportunities for the cares of the world to come in, and I'm able to, to get more acceptance or to get more validation from others, do I run to those things rather than running to Jesus? Do I understand the word of God? If I run from anything other than Jesus, that's where I caution you. That's where I want you to do some self-examination. That's where I want you to, to come and talk to one of, uh, one of our pastors and say, hey, I've got some inconsistencies in my life and I want to talk through this. I, 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 I don't run to Jesus whenever things get tough. And I want us to see as a church that as we continue to advance forward as we continue to share with those around us the word of God I want them to see that the word of God is the only thing that will provide for them the satisfaction they're looking 
in all the other things that they're running to. And the only way that we as a church will be able to do that is by our own grace-driven effort to get into it. This is why we elevate the Word of God on Sunday mornings. This is why we have missional groups throughout the week to discuss the Word of God. This is why, and we don't necessarily organize these from a church standpoint, but we have discipleship groups throughout the week that are two or three people that are getting together to get into the Word of God because we know it's the only thing that will sustain us. Regardless of circumstances, this is the only thing that gives us the satisfaction we're longing for. And so we've got to get to it because it testifies about Jesus. It's all about him. The way that we're going to close out in communion, I'm going to have the band go ahead and come on down front. What better way to end a service that, that is focusing around this idea of the word being cast, people receiving it, and understanding that the only way to do that is through Jesus than understanding what he did for us on the cross. He broke his body and he shed his blood for us to have ears to hear and eyes to see his word. You get that, right? Like this is the first step he took in order to bring this to life in us, to give us the ability to actually walk in his statutes, to be able to run with him in our sanctification is us seeing what he did in coming down and sacrificing his life for us to be able to receive him. And so as we partake of communion, for those who believe this is a, this is a moment of celebration, this is a moment of thank you, this is a moment of us showing our dependence upon him and giving him the credit for it. And so when we break the bread, just picture Jesus breaking his body for you. And when we dip it in the, the juice, that it is Jesus shedding his blood, making atonement for your sins in order for you to be brought into a relationship with him, for him to satisfy all of you. All of you. At any moment, you can get up and go and partake um, and just reflect on his glory. You can take your time as well of going up to do that, but just reflect and just say, thank you, Jesus, for what you've done. Thank you for listening to a sermon from the District Church. For more information about us, please visit www.thedistrict.church. Additionally, if any of our sermons have brought encouragement to you, would you please let us know by emailing us at info at